Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. This is Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. In the next 35 minutes, we're going to learn about food retail in Bangkok. What are the margins like? What are the pricing points? What are the challenges in making and growing a successful and profitable food retail business? We're joined by Surasit or Sit, as he's better known, Sit Satchdev, the co-founder of Hungry Hub. We're going to hear about his entrepreneurial journey and how he pivoted from a booking system to an all-you-can-eat marketing model aimed at Bangkok's thriving restaurant market. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today, we are heading to Bangkok, Thailand to meet Surasit or Sit Satchdev, co-founder of Hungry Hub. Sit, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Graham. It's great to have you here. Now, we're going to talk about food retail, fast food, slow food, retail in Thailand, retail in Bangkok. We're going to have a look at your business, understand the challenges of such a business as well, and how you're sort of pioneering in that space. Let's put Hungry Hub on the table first, if we like. Sit. Let's tell the listeners what it's about. And for those, especially those outside of Thailand, may not be familiar with it, please explain from the bottom up. Sure. So Hungry Hub is an online reservation system that converts a la carte restaurants into a fixed price, all you can eat deal. So as simple as that, converting a restaurant that currently doesn't offer all you can eat. Hmm. But through us, if you book a table, you'll get an all you can eat deal. Right. So we're going to talk about what the problem is that you're solving there, you know, the inefficiency in yep. the restaurant market, the, the whole industry as well. So yep. let me understand, I'm a, a restaurateur. I don't offer yep. all, you to, all you can eat or buffet style service. Yep. Through yep. you guys, through Hungry Hub, I can do that. Is that what you're saying? Yep. So somebody would pay up front, they would pay a fixed fee, they'll go to yep. the restaurant and yep. you obviously have a set, course yep. or set food yep. for uh you know all you can eat and that's how yep. it works yeah okay so yeah i mean it, it basically it changes the restaurant from a la carte into a hybrid so majority of the customers will still be all uh, a la carte hmm. but a small portion of their seats will be allotted to us to be able to sell as an all you can eat package right and what kind of restaurants can i do this at so I would say all the way from like Pizza Hut up until like uh, Mich like not Michelin star restaurant, but I would say like hotel mm. top restaurants. So almost every category, and all you can eat is just the first product that we launch. But our whole uh, vision is to allow diners to know upfront before entering any restaurant how much they're gonna pay. Mm. Why That's do we need to do that? What's wrong with so, the current setup? So the current problem that I have before I changed to this model was I used to take my team out for a meal every now and then. Mm. And and I want to be able to limit because I work on a budget. It's a company's meal. But when you take your team out, you simply can't tell them this you can't order or that you can't mm. order. Or if you go to a buffet setting, you don't really get to talk because everyone's out of the food and like just getting it. So I want you to go to... I want us to go to a nice restaurant with a good ambience, good food, but be able to control my budget. Hmm. And that's how I started off by pivoting ourselves from a booking system into providing exclusive offer that is fixed price based. Yeah, so, so we're going to learn a bit about the pivot 
Yeah. And we're going to talk about how you got to that stage. Let's look at what you're doing. You're competing effectively with who? who who's out there in the market doing what you're doing? I guess it's hotel buffets are really the yeah. only sort of nearest competitor to what you do. I mean, describe to us what a hotel buffet is like for those who haven't had one recently or avoided them maybe. What, what sort of, <laughs> what's that market like? So, so from a customer's perspective, uh, in Thailand is actually quite a big buffet culture. So hotel buffet would represent a small market of the buffet. But I'll tell you what what is each buffet category. So there's one that is mall chain buffets, which is like more Japanese and mm. and and all these things from all the way from like ten dollars per person up until like a hundred dollars per person. These are all non hotel buffets. And the hotels buffets usually start off at like fifty, sixty dollars a person, or even like a hundred dollars a person. And the problem with buffets is the food is not it it is of good quality, but it's not of great taste. Mm. So they just do it out of like having to do it, and not really putting in chef because majority of the time tables are empty. So they do it as a as a five-star hotel, as a four-star hotel, you need to have at least two, three, up to eight, ten dining rooms to call yourself a five-star hotel because you need to have, be able to cater to all your clients uh, that be able to stay in the hotel and not go out and still like have variety options available. Hmm. So, so the hotel market in Thailand, given that you know Thailand is a place of like great food, and people come to Thailand like with the love of food, they don't really eat at the hotel. So majority of the hotel customers go out to eat. So hotels are offering like crazy deals to attract people in. So and a lot of the food still goes to waste because it's not really consumed. Mm. Yeah, I'm always curious about how much is wasted. You know, when they put all that fresh food out there. I mean, you used to work in a hotel, right? Your family run a hotel. My business. family runs hotels, but yeah. not five star. So we do like only three star, three and a half star. So we don't do buffets and all. Right. But I've spoken to a panel at the U. There was a U. UNWF hosted an event recently at Sassin, and they were talking about one hotel dining room uh, waste about forty kilograms of food daily basis. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot, isn't it? It, yeah. it seems as well, I mean, that there's no option really for a hotel. They have to do that. They have yeah. to put the choice out there. I mean, has anybody sort of cracked that? I mean, go to the hotel model there. Has anybody cracked that within the hotels? Have they worked out how, or, or could they say that they can get away with 40 kilos of waste because maybe the margins are so high? Yeah, correct. That That's one of the reasons that they are still able to do it because the margins are, and Hotels have to offer uh, buffet breakfast. So, and the thing is, they don't have enough chef to be able to cook for like a huge room. So they mm. just keep filling that up, which might be easier than offering a la carte. Mm. Yeah. So take that into the outside world, outside of the hotels, in the restaurant market. Why would a restaurateur decide it was a good idea to run some kind of a buffet? What are the advantages for them? So first of all, what the all-you-can-eat concept is not like you have to put the food out there. So it's a à la carte buffet, means you order off the menu. So when you say all-you-can-eat, it's not like there's a separate line of food that you can go and get. So the restaurant experience is no different between Hungry Hub customer and 
a walk-in customer who gets a la carte order. It's just you can order as much as you want within X budget. So so that that is the the real selling point. Basically, if you walk into a restaurant, you might be spending, let's say, $10, $15, the restaurants that we, we target per person. We might be selling it for $20 to $25 to $30 per person as an all-you-can-eat. Mm. So first of all, the restaurant gets more revenue straight up, right? It's a guaranteed revenue as a customer coming in from Hungry Hub versus any other app. There's no guarantee. We'd still have to pay commission. So with, with Hungry Hub, first of all, it's a guaranteed revenue. Second, you're using extra food as marketing gimmick. So your extra food is enticing them to come in and having a high chance of repetition hmm. because they get to try many things at your restaurant versus coming in and trying only one dish. Hmm. Right? And the third, the third thing is really uh, getting a lot of big groups. So... Because groups, especially corporates, like my own problem, we're getting a lot, a lot of big groups on a daily basis, whether it's family, it's friends, reunion, birthday, or even corporate events, up to 100 people. Uh, and that is really where the huge margin is at. Hmm. You also eliminate a major pain point, don't you, is that whenever I've eaten in groups, and yeah. I've been in the unfortunate position of, like paying for everybody or the one <laughs> the one left at the end who's carrying the money yeah yep. it's never a good experience is it because yep. for, it, there's always that bit at the end where either somebody comes up short or yep. somebody pays an extra because somebody forgot or yeah people you know somebody ordered lobster when somebody just yep. had the soup there's yep. always that isn't there? And that that's a major yeah. pain point and I, I sort of think back to like taxi services like Grab and Uber, what they've successfully yeah. done is they've removed that pain point out of the payment, yeah. paying for the service. Like paying for a taxi was always an issue for me. You yeah. know, I never had the right money. I was, did I tip? Did I not tip? Yeah. I never came away feeling good from that experience. Yeah. How much of that is, is important to the experience for yourself, sort of removing that payment issue between the, the customer and the restaurateur at the point at which they're actually experiencing the restaurant? I, I'd say that that is one of the big points, but more moreover to that is that currently when you're at the restaurant, when you look at the menu and then you see, let's say, for example, a salmon selling at like $20 where you normally eat at other restaurants and it's 15 and it looks really good, but you're like, oh, it's a bit overpriced right. and you're, you're not going to have it today. Well, with Hungry Hub, anything you see in the menu, you just can grab it. So because given that you're already set an agreed price up front, whatever you see in the menu, you can have. So that also gives, and the results that we've gotten, we've seen great. Our average review score across the board for all the restaurants is about 4.4 to 4.5, hmm. which the same restaurants on any other review platforms is about 3.7 without doing this deal. So think of it this way. Hungry Hub customers are paying more and walking out happier. Hmm. Because of its majority of the time, it's psychological. It's not really about like the food taste is much better or the service is any different. It's just that they feel like they got the promotion, first of all. And second is that uh, they got to try a variety of food versus getting to try only one or two things. Yeah, there's a lot of different psychologies going on in there. I, I know, I mean, let's talk about it from the consumer's perspective. You're targeting... Uh, offices, businesses, are you talk, targeting sort of B2B groups or who, who are you sort of going after in this space? Who So it's open open to everyone. 
uh, we don't lim- we don't have limitations usually. It's like two people and up, so you can book book a table. We we don't you don't pay upfront, so you pay at the restaurant. So we have up to like twenty people you can book instantly online. More than twenty people, you gotta uh, like through like there's a manual a little bit of a manual process that we have to verify with the restaurant if that they they're available because we only open up uh, limited allotment seats per restaurant. So big groups might not be able to book, but the same promotion we can offer it on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Could you do it for a wedding? Not, not as yet. So it's more. We have done like surprise proposal mm. and like anniversaries and stuff like that, but not, not really to the point of wedding, is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a scale issue as well. I guess some of those yeah. weddings in Asia as well. We're talking thousands of people, so we're not quite there yet. Let's yeah. talk about how you got there. There's a really interesting pivot. Because I mean, if you go back and look at where you started with Hungry Hub, I know you just yep. you wanted to describe it as the open table of Bangkok. There's been a journey along yep. the way. You started off with something that was quite different. Can you tell us like how it actually started and what the idea was for Hungry Hub? So I mean, the idea came out like at 2012 when I when I came back from Singapore. I was working in the bank before that, so I was like, okay, I wanna I wanna do something IT related. I wanna start something from scratch. That, at that time, people were not even talking about startups in Thailand. It was more about just starting an IT business, was what I call it. So I want to do something that had no limitations, meaning currently my family business is in a hotel. means however good I am, I'm able to sell only like X number of rooms per night. Because if I want to sell more than that, i got to build another hotel, which is going to take a year or two and a lot of capital. So I was like, I want to do something where However good I am, I'm able to sell that much. So it's both supply and demand is, is unlimited. So I thought about hotel bookings because obviously my family's in the hotel business. And then I did some research for about a couple of weeks to one month. And then I saw at that point, the Priceline group was spelling, spending about a billion dollars mm. on Google ads a year. And I was like, no way in hell I would have that kind of money to to invest just in Google ads and so, like, I thought about all the angles and I was like, okay, at this point, I don't have ideas to compete. So the next closest thing to my heart was food. And I looked at restaurants and I was like, oh, there you go. There's, there's no restaurant booking in Thailand. And then I did some research about Open Table. And then I talked to some restaurants and they're like, yeah, we're, we're happy to work with you on this. So what I, what I did not ask was the consumers whether if I had this service, would you use it? And I did that for two years blindingly without like talking to the end customers who are the ones going to give me the money actually at the end of the day. Because mm. without their bookings, restaurants not going to pay me anything. So I did it for about two years, dragged it up to about 200 restaurants doing only online reservations. And we hardly, <clears throat> we hardly did any, like we got like small amount of bookings to every restaurant every month. And it didn't really make sense in business terms to continue. So at that point, I was like almost at the point where I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to call it quit. It's enough. And then we talked about the, to the team about like what other things we can explore. Are we going to end it? This is late 2016. And I was like, okay, why don't I? I have a problem. I take my team out. I know that restaurants want more customers. I can see most of them are empty. And they call us and they try to let us do some 10%, 15% promotion to bring in customers. But it doesn't work. All these 10, 20% promotions are 
very much old school now. So then I realized, okay, why don't I do a fixed price uh, promotion? And the the most attractive one is to do it as an all-you-can-eat because that will provide customers with unlimited options to choose whether set menus in Thailand or in Asia. It's not really a culture. So we started with that and then it's taken off since then. We've seen numbers where we've never seen uh, per restaurant. We've sent up to like 4,000 diners per restaurant per month. And that's like almost about $60,000, $70,000 in business to a restaurant per month mm-hmm. just from us. Yeah. So let's talk about that journey because it, it's very interesting that the pivot that you had back in 2016 and where yeah. you started out and how you got there. And maybe we can talk about that pivot moment. You talk about late 2016 when yeah. you had set up a booking business, which, yeah. you know, you've gone out there, you hustled it, you tried your best and you yeah. just weren't getting the traction because of the market. Yeah because of yeah. you know where you were the competition maybe just you know the restaurants weren't used to it yeah and then you went in with this idea of solving the problem that you had yourself as a business and you said something very interesting about the 10 to 15 percent promotions were old school it yeah. sounds like you didn't believe in discounting but what was going on there can you tell us a little bit about that because that seems to be for those who don't know food yeah. retail that seems to be the obvious thing to do yeah so i mean so maybe it's Thai market, but people are quite a little bit spoiled by the crazy deals that have been happening in the last, I would say, eight to nine years, uh, with starting from Groupon, InsoGo, and still to today other variations of 30 to 50% deals. Mm. So given that if we were going to do a promotion and it's going to be 5 to 10%, it's not going to uh, change the market or it's not going to affect customers to come to you because the restaurants that are going to give you the deals are the ones that are not really performing well. Mm. And those ones, uh, with 10, 20%, it's not really going to change the market. So the ones that are performing well are not going to give you any deals. And those are the ones that the customers are looking for. So we were like, why we need to do something about the restaurants that are performing okay, maybe not like full every day, but at 50, 60% capacity. And that those are the ones that I know that customers, if there's any promotion, they will come in. Hmm. So currently we've been working on these type of restaurants and it's basically our, our key key selling point. Because some restaurants, you, you cannot go in and change the whole game. It's about taste, it's about ambience, it's about uh, location. A lot of factors that we cannot change. We cannot go and change the chef and say like, you go out, I think you gotta be replaced. Hmm. So we can only do, we're like a marketing company for them. So we can only do so much given what they have. Yeah, you can't change the product. You, yep. You've given a, a very much a set menu yourself to work with. Yeah. To what extent does that reflect your experience in the hotel space? I'm curious about your background there. When you worked in your family hotel business, what were you doing? Did you Were you there sort of experiencing it as a kid? You know, like what are your, your parents and your, your family you know, working yeah. in the hotel, where you sort of, you know, I guess you got first-hand experience with customers. You see them come and go. You tell us a little bit about that and what you learned without actually so, sort of owning your own business. So, I mean, I've never really got involved in the the hotel business that much. I was only looking at it from the because I as soon as I graduated, I went to uh, work in a bank 
So I, I've always didn't want to enter because as soon as I enter, I know I can't exit. Hmm. So that was that was my my point. I mean, my family has always been wanting me to come in still till today, telling me every day like just you know come and join. But what I what I saw was more about managing people, managing the whole situation, looking at the industry of like online coming to shift the whole travel agent market and the main middleman in the long run. So looking at Agoda, Grow from Scratch or Expedia, Booking.com, TripAdvisor, the importance of it for the hotel business today. So I, I got to learn that from a, from a merchant perspective, I guess. Hmm. Uh, but that's about it from, from my viewpoint. Mm. I'm curious as the the type of personalities that are successful in that space, whether it is in hotels or in restaurants or even travel and hospitality. I had um, on on the show recently had Kieran Tanner from Zen yeah. Zen Rooms on, and it was interesting that you know when they built that business and they went out and they did the MVP, yep. they went and lived in the hotels, and you know that was their first two months three months doing that you know going from hotel to hotel living in the hotel talking to the owner over breakfast yeah and you know just going and doing their research and validating the model and yeah. living with these people right and, and that you know if you've got a business school i'm not sure how much of it trains you to think and do like that right you know and that's the challenge isn't it is that when you have a background in hospitality you know that you have to spend time with people. You have to have an empathy for people as well. Mm-hmm. What's it like in the restaurant business? You know, how much of your time are you spending talking to restaurateurs and you know the people who work in these retail outlets? So I would say, like, the the lucky thing is that when I sh- pivoted the model, I already had two to three years of experience talking to restaurants on a daily basis. So at least about two hours a day, at least. I'll be talking to restaurant owners, whether it's over the phone, whether it's face-to-face meeting, whether it's presentation or follow-up. So at least I would say one to two hours. Sometimes I have back-to-back meetings the whole day with restaurants, but on average it's like at least one to two hours a day talking to restaurants. So I've learned, I would say, every restaurant that I've done business, I have done a buffet business, probably I've done it only in their vertical or in their cuisine type. We have probably done all cuisine type at all price point at all location areas throughout Bangkok. So we understand very well when we we also do consulting to the restaurant, like what price they should set, what menu they should set. So it's not just you come and put your promotion on our website and it's going to work. So it, there is a little bit of angle on day one that we help them. But then along the way, it's pretty much like minimum interactions in terms of promotion ideas. Mm. Yeah. Well, at least two hours a day, that's a lot of research, isn't yep. it? a lot of validation, a lot of, you know, FaceTime with the yep. market. Those restaurant owners, I mean, what kind of people are they? I mean, what have you learned in those conversations with them and spending time with them? For those people so, that don't know the restaurant business, what, we don't really know what restaurant owners are like apart from what we see on TV. Yeah. What's the reality? So, in, in, I don't know about other countries, but in Thailand, there's two to three types of restaurant owners. One that are that are chef themselves or studied cooking and then come in. And those are the ones that get really involved, get their hands dirty, create the menu and stay at the restaurant almost every day. Right. So those are the ones that usually work out quite well. So I would say one, one rule that I've 
recently noticed is if you are a standalone restaurant, means like you don't have branches, you have to be there every day. Otherwise, mm. something's going to go wrong. Mm. And it's very, very difficult to... The ones that I, I go back to restaurants is usually the ones that owners come up to you or, or even the managers that are very well trained come up to you and talk to you and you build that relationship. So I think that is my... Whenever I tell any restaurant or any people who want to get into the restaurant space, I always say, are you ready to give up your time every day to be at the restaurant mm. to at least oversee the operations, talk to your customers, etc. So, so that's the type A of the restaurant. And the second one, which I don't uh, really enjoy working with much, is like they're looking at restaurants more as an investment that, oh, I've lived abroad in US or UK and I've seen this work and I want to open the same thing and I'll do it more as an investment. So they'll invest, they'll go in maybe once a week or once a month for like a team meeting and then let it run until one year later they close down. Hmm. So that that is also very common in Thailand because it's, it's usually kids of uh, rich families yeah, or, yeah. that have studied abroad and, and want to bring that concept to Thailand. Hmm. So I'm not saying all of them fail, but I would say 80, 90% of them uh, really don't understand uh, how to hire, or how to maintain staff to turnover or managing the kitchen or inventory price point. So there's a lot of things to restaurants other than just uh, wanting to open one and having the idea or the, the, the cuisine type. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is hotels. And hotels, the, the challenge with hotels is like I said earlier, they have to have the restaurant. And majority of the time, it's the one that is losing money. So they look at, majority of hotel restaurants look at food costs or staff costs as a hotel cost and not as a restaurant cost. So they, they don't look at the opportunity of like renting out that space for other restaurants that are more passionate to come in and do it and they earn the rent at least and make it profit. A lot of hotels say they have to do it because they have to control the quality and and they are five-star. They have to maintain the reputation. They have to provide variety to the customers. But those are the ones that are always losing money because there's better options in Bangkok outside mm-hmm. of hotels and not, not as expensive, I would say. Yeah, so, so yeah, pretty much like three types of restaurants that I mainly deal with. So do you find yourself spending most of your time with the first type? because they're the ones who are most receptive or have the most yeah. to gain from what you offer? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, the, the good thing with them is they, they are hands-on, so they call you, they follow up. Like, if there's anything wrong, they will, they will talk to you when the problem arises. The second one would be like, oh, I'm closing down. Or like, you know, we can't do this anymore because of X, Y, Z. Whereas those issues could have been sorted out along the way if, we had discussions, but they don't really get involved on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So, so I enjoy definitely more with the, the first one. Yeah. Mm. How is that when you go in and you are talking to somebody who has put everything into that business? Like you say, yep. sometimes they're the chef, they're the owner, yep. they're the pot wash, they're everything in many cases. Yep. They've done everything. And yeah. that they've built that business and they are hustling. Unlike the second group, which you say, maybe the second group has the money and the yeah. 
business skills, but they don't have the hustle and that sort yeah. of cutting edge that maybe the first group has. How is it when you go into that, that group A, the owner managers, the owner of chefs, and you propose them a change in the menu effectively? You're saying, okay, yeah. look, what we're going to do is we're going to gear the price here. You're going to have customers come in, pay a fixed fee. And do they get it? Is, is there a bit of a selling going on there? I mean, what's, how do people react to that generally? So the, actually the first type is a harder sell, but when mm. it works, then it's more long-term. So because they're very passionate about their food, sometimes they don't care about uh, money coming in, but they want people to enjoy the concept they've created and they don't want to do anything that is buffet. Like a lot of hotel owners that are very passionate, they like, because buffet is like the extreme end of like, hmm. in that mindset, the worst quality food and and like not service oriented and all that kind of thing. Whereas Hungry Hub, we, we, the reason why we don't call it buffet, one of the main reasons is that we want to distinguish that a little bit more premium calling it all you can eat because in Thailand, people don't really use the word all you can eat. So we're building that brand from the ground up. But but as a at the end of the day, it's still a buffet means it's still a unlimited dining. So some restaurants have that attachment that as soon as you say we're converting a la carte into buffet, they just say no. They don't even want to listen to anything else because they are very passionate about their food. Even if they have to close down to their dead bed, they're not going to do buffet. They are type of restaurants like that. But the second one that is doing it more as a business. And they're like, yeah, anything, any market. They look at it as a marketing promotion and they just keep doing it if it earns money. Mm. So that gets a little bit scary because they don't get hands-on and they just uh, do like the, the worst promotion, meaning like the best promotion for the customer but worse for themselves. So we try to tell them like, hey, that that is not going to work. It's too cheap. Whereas actually we would get more money, but we don't we don't go in with that mindset. We, we will look at long-term promotion. Mm. Yeah. And that, that second scenario as well, it may make you more money, but it might end up shorter term, right? Because yep, the, the the restaurant can't sustain it. With, with the first type, those, those sort of owner managers where they're harder to sell, but once they buy in and they see it work, what's a typical sort of reaction? How do they, what happens next once they start realizing, actually, this is working really well? Do they start to change things in terms of what they're doing and their marketing and their menu? Uh, I mean, the ones that are, like I said, the ones that we approach, they're doing quite okay already. It's not like they're not doing well, but it's more like, okay, a bit more customers would help them. So that's why they limit us to like uh, X percentage of the seats. Mm. So it doesn't take up too much of their their existing business. So it's it, it's looked at like a sustainable extra source of income. Whereas if they were to go and do other promotions or other marketing, it would be like 50% off to bring in more customers, which they don't want to spoil the brand because their existing customer is going to go there and not come back after they stop doing the promotion. Mm. So, so yeah, these are restaurants that we, we clearly distinguish. The ones that are doing 50% promotions, most of them we don't really work with, right? Because that, that's the ones that are not going to last very long at the end of the day. I mean, if you would extend this model, do you, do you foresee a, a restaurant that do a hundred percent buffet or unlimited dining, and that was their standard model, where they just would that work economically? So, I mean, the the reason why we don't do hundred percent is first of all, the kitchen is not built 
big enough to cater to, let's say they have 100 seats at the restaurant or 60 seats. The kitchen is built for serving 60 people. But with Hungry Hub, let's say we're taking 10 or 20%, so like 10 or 12 people uh, to eat as an unlimited amount. So they will be like double, they'll be eating like two people each. Hmm. One customer would eat like as if there is two customers at the restaurant. For the kitchen, there's more food to cook at like lesser time, right? So unless they change their whole operations, it's hard to switch 100% from a la carte business into a buffet business. So that that's one. And second is branding. If you switch from a la carte to buffet, there's no coming back to a la carte. It's very difficult to revamp your whole brand, right? So with Hungry Hub, it allows you to do both. Some restaurants have tried it when they see our promotion and then they try to do it themselves and it doesn't work. And then when we approach them, they said they've tried it before. I said, give us a shot. We'll do it differently. And then we do it and we've been doing it with them for a year and a half now. Mm. So... So it's not, it's not just doing the buffet, but it's about the whole menu, the number of seats, the promotion, the price, uh, a menu having certain items limited to one and most of the items being all you can eat. So we do a lot of things in the photos that you use. So there's a lot of aspect to how to make it successful rather than just doing the buffet. Mm. Yeah, fascinating walk through the world of food retail as well. Thank you for that, Sit. And just in terms of where you go from here, what is yeah. next? You Obviously, Bangkok is a thriving marketplace. Yeah. Do you see that, you know, your foreseeable future focused on, you know, mastering the Bangkok market? Do you see global expansion moving to other cities? Because, it, it, you know, it's very specific as well, market by market food retail. Yeah. What are the future plans? I mean... As of now, we want to really get grow the number of restaurants to, to conquer. At, at this point, we are kind of profitable at break-even slash profitable depending on the month, but uh, we are reinvesting all of it into the company. So, And since we have all bootstrapped till date, so we want to make sure Bangkok is sustainable on its own before we invest the, the, the profit into another market or unless we raise external funding. Mm. But as of now, we, we haven't talked to any investors aggressively. Mm. So it's more like any anyone that comes in, we talk on a case-by-case basis. Mm. But to definitely to expand this culture is there throughout Asia. Uh, I wouldn't say Europe and US because people usually eat their own plate, but in, wherever there's a sharing market, uh, meaning uh, food sharing on the table. They don't have their own. Like in Thailand, people don't order their own meal unless they're going alone. So they're usually in a groups of four and like order everything to share so that they can try a lot of things. So wherever there's a sharing culture, I would say it works. And we've talked to many players, even in Africa or South America, this model can be applied there. But we, we want to grow basically regionally once once we hit it right in Bangkok. So mm. when I say hit it right, probably about 300. Right now we are 130 restaurants. So at 300, I would say we'll, we'll be comfortable. Okay, and you're nine people at the moment, right? Correct. Yeah, are you recruiting? We are, yeah, we're always recruiting. Always recruiting, such as startup life. What, what kind of, I mean, just curious about what kind of people, mindsets you're looking for? Is there a particular hard skill that you want in your team? Is there a particular domain knowledge or a mindset that really attracts you to the kind of people you want to reach out to you? I, I mean, what I, what I really look at is the important 
factors can they fit in with the culture that we have right so so based on the interview it can be but I, I always look for people with passion and people who are self-driving uh, and obviously anyone with the background in the food industry or networks with the restaurant that's always a bonus but not necessarily so recently we just recruited a uh, one of the top food bloggers in Thailand mm. so like I said we don't we don't focus on the quantity of people but we really focus on the quality and we pay we pay a good market rate. So we have got them from a big corporate where there's like a billion dollar company. So we move, so we move that we are willing to pay that, that price as long as you are able to contribute to the market. Mm. And within two or three months, we already seen the, the return. Yeah. Based on just connecting us to big restaurants, connections and all that kind of thing, or even like food blockers. So we, we, we look for people that, can plug in and extend our business line, whether through new networks or through new channels. Yeah. I also wonder what that word passion really means. I mean, I mean, if you were to have an interview with somebody, they're always going to tell you that they enjoy food and they they can, you know, say that yeah. they're passionate about it. But what exactly do you look for when you say you look for someone who's passionate about what they do? What are the telltale signs that that person? So I mean, I mean, nowadays there's a lot of like people that come in and they they have their hobby or they have their a blog page that they're running on their own or like on free time, what do they do? And you can see from there like that what are the things that some people come into me and they're like, Oh yeah, we we go to coffee shops and we take photos and this is our Instagram page and mm. They have like maybe 5,000 followers or 10,000 followers and they're not really making anything out of it, but they're, they're consistent in doing that same thing over and over again. They're really passionate about it. So you can see it in the, I would say I look at more of it as a result base uh, and then looking at, I like people who think differently, people who do things differently. So, so just during the interview, you can pick up whether this, this person is, of high caliber or just because we have limited number of resource. We want to really recruit people that, uh, like, like you said, the word passion is what I'm looking for, but I define it in using their results that they've done yeah. before coming to the interview. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it. I always look for in somebody's resume or their stories that what, what have they done outside of what somebody paid them or told them yep. to do? Yeah. So, you know, some people say, look, well, I did this at my previous job or I did this at university. Yeah. That's, I'm interested to know, what have you done when, you know, you did it on your own steam where you did yeah. it at the weekend or this project that you started or like you said, the social media project that yeah. you've been working on. Those are real telltale signs. So anybody that's listening, thinking of reaching out, whether it's to Surasit and Hungry Hub or any startup that's what they should really focus on because that's what we founders look for. You know, what are you going to do? What's in your DNA anyway, yep. your programming, you know, whether you're paid or not. So it's been fascinating. Surasit Sachdev, everybody, co-founder of Hungry Hub in Bangkok. And Sit, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today and Thanks. those insights into food retail and the, the Thai market as well. It's been really interesting and educational. Um, the best way for people to reach out to you, what would be your preferred channel? Uh, email is fine or my because uh, my Facebook I use my Indian name so it'll probably be hard to find LinkedIn is fine too gotcha we'll put it all in the show notes
Sure. Thank you, thank you so much for sharing today, and look forward to getting an update at some point in the future and the continuing journey and expansion of Hungry Hub. So we look forward to that. Come back on six months, twelve months down the line, and share an update with us. Surasit, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.